Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. This is the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. Thank you for listening to us. Um, this is your no-bullshit business radio show. You know, if you're listening for the first time, we've been bringing you the show for three years now. We've interviewed over 180-odd business leaders and movers and shakers, and we've received untold advice on how to become an on- a successful entrepreneur. Now, we don't sit here and tell you about the fluctuations of the Fortune 500 companies or why a CEO is hated by his staff or any of that stuff. We just give you solid practical advice to help you become one of those Fortune 500 companies somewhere in the future. Every week we try to bring you the latest information on what's happening in business around the world. Now, speaking of Fortune 500 companies, if there was ever proof of how business is changing, just think about this. 40% 40% 40% of the Fortune 500, which is the index of the biggest companies in the world, 40% of the, com- of the Fortune 500 companies in 2004, 10 years ago, are no longer in existence. Wow. And, you know, there's been a lot of disruption over the last 10 years, but there's going to be a hell of a lot more disruption over the next 10 years. So imagine what the Fortune 500 is going to look like then. The new uh, 2014 WealthX and UBS billionaire census, which lists the world's billionaires, was released this week. Unfortunately, again, they left me off the bloody list. However, there were 155 new billionaires, which pushed the total number of billionaires on the planet to 2,325. Now, the wealth of all these billionaires increased by 12% to $7.3 trillion, which is higher than the combined market capitalization of all of the companies on the Dow Jones. <laughs> oh, God. The United States has got 571 billionaires, Europe, 775 billionaires, and China, 190 billionaires, followed by the United Kingdom with 130. And 33 of the 155 new billionaires came from China. Interestingly, the number of billionaires in the Middle East, despite all their oil, shrank. Other interesting statistics to come out of the census were that 87% of all billionaires are male and only 13% are female and only 5% of billionaires are worth more than $10 billion. Now, a number that did surprise me is that India has more billionaires than Switzerland, Hong Kong and France. And New York's the city with the most billionaires with a total of 103. 
And uh, another interesting thing I thought was that the fastest growing segment of the billionaire populations are those who inherited only part of their fortunes and became billionaires through their own entrepreneurial endeavours. Although it's got to be a bloody sight easier to become a billionaire if you start with 200 million than if you start with squat, right? Anyway, maybe next year I'll make the list and I hope that you might make it too. So we sit here. Now, what's the next big thing? Let me tell you. It's email. Now, countless companies, both large and small, have spent years and huge sums of money building Facebook followings. And for a while, it made sense. Whenever the company posted something, their fans saw it in their feeds. But then Facebook changed its algorithm to favour news and content from friends over that of brands. So companies immediately saw their posts essentially disappear. Now, a study by Ogilvy and Mather found that companies' posts dropped from reaching 12% of their followers to reaching just 6% 12 months later. Now to reach fans, companies had to have to pay Facebook to promote their posts. You know, people are always going to say, um, how, how is Facebook ever going to make any money? Well, that's how. <laughs> so what are people doing? They can't use Facebook. They're using email. And many marketing companies are reporting that the click rate is reaching more than 40%. So not only are more people reading their emails, but marketers are getting more replies. People are actually opening, reading, and replying to marketing emails. How cool is that? In part because spam filters have improved email, and, you know, it's long been maligned as a mass communication tool, and, um, you know, we used to just dump them. It's actually welcome again. Many companies view the off-putting Facebook policy change as a blessing in disguise because once you leave Facebook, you gain something really, really important. You gain control. And it's not just companies that are seeing the benefits of leaving Facebook. Artists, writers and entertainers are finding email. Of course, they've also found hello. And uh, they're both great tools in building a personal connection with audiences. So, give me good old email any day. I love it. You know, we started off with um, bricks and mortar stores doing really well, and then along came online stores, and they did really well. And then bricks and mortar stores started to fight back, and then it swung the other way. And then um, bricks and mortar retailers thought they had reverse showrooming worked out, but. The e-commerce giants are battling to own that last mile. Now, companies like Google, Amazon, eBay, Uber, and a whole bunch of others are expanding services that allow shoppers to order something online and have it delivered that same day, usually within hours, without ever leaving home. So despite the expense and complexities involved in delivering this last mile, Immediately, these companies 
is sure and certain will grow e-commerce customer base as well as their share of retail dollars. But much more importantly, they are killing off one of bricks and mortars retail's last real competitive advantage. You want it today, you can get it today. Well, now you want it today, you can get it today from bricks and mortar or online. And uh, a new study has taken an exhaustive look Exhaustive look at the same-day delivery market, sizing the percentage of people who have purchased goods to be delivered the same day. They looked at the demographics, the markets where these services have the best chance of taking off, and they look at how each of the entrants compare to the others. They also looked at the technology that could really make getting a package delivered to your door just an hour or two after you deliver it a very common practice. The report found that 2% of shoppers living in city where same-day delivery is offered currently are using the service. It's only 2%, but in dollar terms, that's roughly $100 million worth of merchandise that will be delivered by a same-day fulfilment this year in 20 US cities. And uh, consumer interest in same-day delivery is high. 40% of US shoppers say they would use same-day delivery if they didn't have time to go to the store. And 25% said that they would consider abandoning an online shopping cart if same-day delivery wasn't an option. The most common same-day delivery shopper fits a very specific profile. You'll never guess, but they're millennials. Highly likely to be male, They're urban dwelling, and they are young. However, despite all the competition in the same-day delivery market, it's not going to be easy to get people to pay additional for same-day services. 92% of consumers say they'd rather wait three or four days if they have to pay for extra delivery fees. So, I don't know. I wouldn't mind paying the extra delivery fees just for the convenience. You know, if you've got to drive a fair way to a a mall or whatever, it's a pain in the butt driving there. There's other things you could do. You've got to park. Pain. And what about when it's wet? In In a lot of places, it's wet a lot. So I'd rather stay home and have it delivered. This also isn't going to be a surprise, but Generation Z spends almost double the proportion of their income online, as do millennials. Recent research shows that there are surprising and important differences in behaviour depending on gender, age, income, education. You know, Generation Z, which is um, those up to 20, spend almost 10% of all of their dollars online. And, you know, as they get older... And they earn more money, they're going to spend more money. And so not only will they spend more money if they stay at 10%, but they're going to increase up from 10%. And this 10% is a much higher proportion of their income than any other generation. Millennials, you know, they're probably 20 to 34 now, remain the key age demographic for online commerce. They're spending more money online in a given year, but less in percentage. But boomers and seniors are also pretty mobile savvy. 
They've adopted mobile commerce. 25% of mobile shoppers in the US are over the age of 55. 25% of mobile shoppers in the US are over the age of 25. That, that, over the age of 55. I must admit that surprises me. Although I use my phone for everything now. Um, the conventional wisdom is that women drive shopping tent trends since they control up to 80% of household spending. But when it comes to e-commerce, men spend just as much as women do. And men are much more likely to use their mobile devices to make purchases. 22% of men made a purchase on their smartphones last year, about 25% more than women did. And uh, men are happy to say, look, we'll buy everything online. We're happy to buy any, everything, we don't care what it is, but only 30% of women say the same thing. And online shoppers are affluent. They uh, have higher than typical incomes. 55% of e-commerce shoppers have household incomes more than $75,000. So online is growing, particularly among the young which uh, means that moving forward, that's the way it's going to go. Now, let's talk about banks for a minute. The big enemy of banks, apart from a majority of the population, (laughs) is mobile. Mobile is pulling customers away from both branches and online banking. Whoever goes to a bank anymore? And the relationship between consumers and their banks is in a period of dramatic upheaval because of the technological innovation. And bricks and mortar banks are just losing relevance among all consumers, but particularly millennials. Now, I, I bank at Chase, and I was at Chase the other day, and I just happened to ask them, I said, you know, what percentage of people actually come into the bank now? And um, they told me that and this is a big branch. They told me that um, people under 25, in a week, they might get one or two. One or two out of probably thousands of people that have accounts at that bank. And banks face this incredible competition from tech giants like Square, PayPal, Apple, Google, and uh, 55% of North Americans say they were likely to bank with Square if Square could offer a banking service. To stay relevant, banks just have to rethink every channel through which they reach their customers and the services they provide us because they suck. So what can banks do to stay ahead of the curve? In my view, probably nothing. They've treated us with contempt for 50 years and now it's time to get their own back. You know, they were the only game in town for so long no longer. We don't like them. We won't bank with them. We will find somewhere else to go. And mobile banking is um, now more popular with bank customers than going to the branches. 57% of customers do their banking online every week. Only 14% of people visit a branch. So at the top, 
the three banks that control it, about half of all online customers also use mobile banking, with active mobile banking users comprising over 50% of online customers. So not only is it going online, but most of the online is on mobile. So um, the next generation of uh, banking customers is going to be much less satisfied with its banks than the older groups, and it'll bank with other alternatives. So um, I don't know what banks are going to do, but what I can, can say to banks is watch out for Apple Pay. In my view, Apple Pay is going to kick their ass. Now, you're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. We're here to assist entrepreneurs to become more successful. So if you have a question about any aspect of business, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we'll answer it on air or we'll email you directly. Now, make sure you subscribe to my monthly newsletter. It's sent out to over 16,000 business executives in over 60 countries every month. The new one will come out in about a week. Um, I think one of the telling things about the newsletter that we send out is we send it out to over 16,000 people. On average, we would get two unsubscribes, two out of 16,000. I reckon that's pretty good, and I think it's because it is interesting and it can help anybody in business irrespective of what you do for a living. Now, you're listening to Voice America Business, and I'm going to be back in a moment with um, Darren Kavanaki. Now, he is a great guy, and he's, you'll know him. You'll know him even if you, the name doesn't ring a bell. He's no stranger to television cameras. He's always on television. He's on every bloody news channel, um, and uh, he's in the courtroom. He's at the speaker's podium. He's um, one hell of an accomplished trial lawyer. He uh, hosts television shows. He's a legal analyst. He's everywhere. But he's also no um, stranger to pain and misery. He was once an overweight kid from a dysfunctional family. He went on to suffer suffer from his own addictions, um, which bloody near killed him. Um To say that he was spiralling towards the bottom is a real understatement. He lost absolutely everything. He was a bankrupt attorney who swept floors in a furniture store. Then he saw the light with a little bit of help from his wife and he created several multi-million dollar businesses. He's also a member of Metal, which is a group in Los Angeles that I talk about all the time that I'm a member of, a phenomenal group. So if you're an entrepreneur and you want to meet the top 1,600 movers and shakers in media, entertainment, technology in America, they're all at metal. And it's on every every Saturday and you meet some of the most incredible people on the planet. So I'll be back with Darren, who's a good bloke, after this short break. Do you want the world to know you're a force to be reckoned with? If so, you must join the American Institute of Sales, Marketing, and Management, America's foremost accreditation institute. You'll be amazed at how AISMM can open doors that you can't. 
Increase your prestige and influence. Add the letters AISMM after your name. Apply now. Go to AISMM.org. Again, that's AISMM.org. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to Bob at BobPritchard.com. That's Bob at BobPritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is the part of the show where we, we talk to extraordinary people, people that have enjoyed fantastic success and are really making their mark in the world. Now, there's some incredibly talented people around and I love to speak with them because you know they've got so much that they can teach us they got so much motive that can motivate us and my aim in these interviews is to try and find out what are the characteristics that really make them tick what makes them great and what can we learn from their experience today's guest I might add another metal alumni is Darren Cavanoki who's no stranger to the television cameras. You've probably seen him. Um, he's no, no stranger to the courtroom either, although these days I suspect he does a lot more um, other things than being in a courtroom. Or on the speaker's podium, he's an accomplished trial lawyer, a well-known television host, a legal analyst, and he is a fantastic keynote speaker. So if you need a great speaker... Um, and you don't want to hire me as in marketing, well, <laughs> Darren is great. <laughs> Darren's the creator and the host of the hit TV show Deadly Sins on Investigation Discovery. He's also a certified interventionist, not that I'm quite sure what that means. He's an attorney and a legal analyst and a misbehaviour expert who appears constantly on you've seen him on the Today Show, on The View, Entertainment Tonight, The Insider, Dr. Phil CNN, HLN, Fox News, and countless others. On, he's everywhere, this guy. He's a, and what, the thing I love the most, I've got to tell you, he's the founder of 1-800-NO-CUFFS. I think that's about the best name, name I've ever heard. And I'll have to keep it in mind for the next time I get picked up. God, God forbid you ever need me, Bob, yeah, but right. yes. <laughs> the Kevin, um, the um, it's a, that's a law firm, the Kavanoke Law Firm, and he's known as an award-winning criminal defense attorney. The American Trial Lawyers Association has named him one of the top 100 trial lawyers in California every year since 2007. Uh, Los Angeles Magazine identifies Darren as Super Lawyer. That's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty cool. He's also written textbooks and you know all that sort of stuff. But more important than his professional accomplishments is the compelling, inspirational tale that he's got to tell. It's hard when you look at him, it's hard to imagine this, but he was once an overweight kid from a dysfunctional family. Um, he went on to suffer from his own addictions, which plagued him for many years. Um, and to call his downward spiral a bottom is a gross understatement. He lost everything. But in May of 2000, after two decades of battling his demons... Darren experienced a pivotal moment and the bankrupt attorney who swept floors in a furniture store created several multi-million dollar businesses. He's, a, he's an incredible guy, this guy. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful story. 
he has the innate ability to authentically connect with with people from all works of life. It doesn't matter whether doesn't matter whether you're at the top of the tree or the bottom of the tree. And uh, this talent is obviously what gets his um, um, all the bad guys he defends out of <laughs> keeps them out of jail. So he's a pretty cool guy. Hi, Darren. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard <laughs> Radio Show. How are you? Uh, ben, th- thanks for having me, and thank you for the uh, for the glowing <laughs> kind words. It seems somehow seems fairly appropriate that a um, a trial lawyer who gets bad guys off uh, should be um, currently in Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, yeah, Las Vegas is a city with a long and storied history of bad guys, no question. <laughs> but I'm, I'm just here for a brief holiday. But uh, uh, yes, it does feel somewhat appropriate that we're having this conversation while I'm here. <laughs> now, you've got a non-traditional background you know most of the lawyers that i know came from families with silver spoons in their mouth um but what led you to become a lawyer can you was it just you got arrested so many times that you thought well shit i'm on the wrong side of the tree here yeah you know it's, it's funny as a kid i always had this notion that i would become a lawyer uh, and I don't know if it was just a cultural thing that in my family it was, uh, hey, this, you know, Darren's argumentative and he loves to debate, uh, doesn't seem to be too interested in math, therefore, you know, <laughs> let's put him in the lawyer box. Um, but it, it was something as a kid, I remember, uh, the cover page to my career report that I wrote in school when I was 12 years old, uh, which thankfully my mom kept and I have it framed on the, on uh, on the wall in my office that there's a, you know this is a story about what I will be like 10 years from now or rather a speculation of what I'll be like 10 years from now I feel that while a person's physical features may change their basic psyche stays the same and if this philosophy holds true I will probably be a bum or even worse <laughs> a lawyer uh, either way and here's the oddly prophetic part it says It goes on to say, either way, you end up drinking something out of a brown paper bag. The only difference is where. (laughs) And um, I don't know how in the hell that thought had occurred to me at the tender age of 12 before I had had a drink of anything. But it turned out to be very much the truth. Um, So it's funny because I, I had these notions that I would ultimately become a lawyer but the path that I trudged in order to make that happen is um, is certainly not the traditional path. There was no silver spoon. Um, there was no, uh, as a matter of fact, there, w- there wasn't even a, a great deal of um, intellectual horsepower if you would have looked at my transcripts. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and and it was certainly it was certainly uh, a really unusual path for me. You know, I. Um, uh, and I think it just started with my own, with my own personal tale that that you mentioned about being um, being an overweight kid uh, from a family that was um, you know just going through its own its own chaos. There were a lot of remarriages and a lot of uh, moving around and just a lot of instability. It, yeah. it certainly wasn't abusive, uh, but it was um, you know looking back on it, it was, it was definitely unstable right. and. Um, and I remember uh, at age 13 uh, being, being shopping, going shopping for school clothes with my mom. And, um, of course, with all the remarriages, sadly, Bob, my mom always married for love and never for money. Right. So, <laughs> so we were shopping. Yeah, I've always uh, we done that, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, sh- shopping in Sears for school clothes. And I remember buying tough skin jeans 
that uh, that came in a size they called husky, <laughs> which uh, you know, and that notion was never lost on me. You know, husky um, uh, was was more than pleasingly plump. You know, it just meant yeah. downright fat. I think. And yeah. by the way, can you imagine being in that marketing meeting uh, with, with with the guys from Sears as they're deciding what to call these jeans? You know, <laughs> hey, hey, Bill, what do we want to call these? How about loser fat? jeans like no we'll just call them husky they'll know, you know? <laughs> so but you you always wanted to be a trial lawyer you didn't sort of think well i'll take the easy way out and just do um conveyancing or something absolutely fucking boring no 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 i would it was never always a notion Perry Mason. Of, yeah that that it always appealed to me and you know but but what it what it started was um when i was that fat 13 year old kid uh, I was at a party with all the cool kids that I had no business being at, and they were passing around a joint. One of them passed it my way, and I took a puff off that joint, and in one moment, everything changed for me. And I no longer felt that unbearable weight of being me. I felt like I could fit in with everybody else. Right. And in my 13-year-old brain, I made a conscious decision that that's how I wanted to feel every waking moment. And I pursued that with vigor. And so what, what ultimately happened is when I, you know, when I barely made it out, of, well, I shouldn't say barely made it out. I had a strong C average out of high school. And, um, you know, and then off to college where, where my sole criteria for my college education was where is, you know, what school is going to give me the best access to the best parties. Um, you know, it was, it, it wasn't, oh, I'm going down the path of becoming a lawyer. And then ultimately, while I was in college, I managed to create a pretty decent size, uh, you know, chemical dependency issue for myself. So that when I was finally out as a, as a lawyer, I became most interested in criminal law because, uh, A, I wanted to get closer to the drug dealers, and it seemed like that was a reasonable way to do it. And, uh, and, and B, at that time, this was just when O.J. Simpson was being brought to trial. Right. And, uh, and Robert Shapiro and the rest of that dream team were sort of looked upon like the rock stars of the legal industry. And I, and that just appealed to my ego. Right. So, so you went from 12, you're this little fat kid, and then you yep. all of a sudden turned into this stoned little fat kid, and yep. then you went to university, to college, and um, were you still the sort of stoned little fat kid at that stage, or are you sort of trying you to know, get yourself into shape? You know, it's so funny looking back on it. I think it's that, it's that little bit of body dysmorphia where when I look at photographs of myself from that you know, as I as I was, especially in the later stages of high school and into college, I, I'd always, I, you know, I still felt that kind of discomfort in my own in my own skin. Mm. Uh, yet when I look back at photos of me, um, you know, there, it, certainly I grew. I, I think I had those growth spurts that that adolescent boys get, and and you know, certainly looked looked just fine. Um, and and it was it was just curious that my that my outsides and my insides just didn't match, or certainly the yeah. way that I perceived them. You, you but, became um, outwardly, ruggedly handsome. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that, but uh, but definitely the party raged on. You know, part of the way that at least I dealt with. Um, you know, it's it, it, it's funny. I think um, uh, just as human beings, all of us have this this. Um, uh, th- th- there's something that happens with us where we we always underestimate the consequences for our misbehavior, yeah. 
And that was certainly true in my case, where at you know, the age of 13, when you first started going down that path, um, you know, if you would have told me that getting on the path would have cost me everything, um, I probably wouldn't have believed you. I, pr- I would have thought that, you know, I know better in all of my yeah, 13 years of wisdom. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I just, I, I was incapable of seeing it on my own. Um, and, and I think that's something that, that is true for, for everybody, uh, just to a greater or lesser extent, where, you know, if we could really appreciate the consequences of our misbehavior, then we're highly unlikely to misbehave. And by the way, I see that all the time in my practice as a criminal defense lawyer, where people will delude their thinking to allow them to do all kinds of silly or tragic uh, kinds of misbehavior. Hmm. And yet, when, you know, when they start out, I, I should say it this way that, you know, every screw up I've ever had, every mistake I've ever made, uh, every bit of criminal misbehavior I've ever done, it all started out as a great idea. You know, no one, no one ever sets out to torpedo their lives, and yet somehow on some level I think people can, can blind themselves to that. Well, I think that day over a few beers in the pub in England, somebody thought that the great train robbery was a really good idea. <laughs> exactly. Every bad idea wrong. I ever had started out as a good one, right? So where was, what was the hallelujah moment? What, at what point did you sit there and say, geez, I can't do this to myself anymore? Was it, was it a woman? Was it just, your, your own um, self-esteem suddenly kicked in. Um, it seems to me that once people get into getting the horrors, whether it's a lack of confidence in their ability to do something or whether it's a dependency or whatever it is, it is damned hard to get out of it. Yeah, no question. And I spent nine years uh, unsuccessfully attempting to get out of it, sort of doing that back and forth and back and forth, which is as uncomfortable as sitting on a picket fence trying to decide you know, which, which end you want to, uh, you want to land on. And, uh, and it was extremely troublesome. And during, during the nine years of unsuccessfully battling uh, to decide whether I was going to be you know, getting cleaned up or not, uh, I, was, I was really skidding across the bottom, uh, complete uh, and utter financial um, uh, you know, just ruin, um, in and out of a number of different treatment centers. I got married very early on in that. My wife uh, threw me out at one point. Um, and, uh, you know, when she came to me one day and basically gave me the ultimatum of, you know, it's either this crazy lifestyle you're living or it's me, uh, as insane as it may seem, you know, my best thinking in the throes of my addiction were, okay, I guess I need to, you know, go to Vegas and be loaded. And it was, I mean, it was just insane. Yeah. And uh, in and out of a bunch of different hospitals and treatment centers for, for several years, between 95 and 2000, I was in five different treatment centers. It was really, really, um, it was awful. It, it was really awful. Even though I was a lawyer, I wasn't practicing law. Uh, as you mentioned in the intro, I was you know, moving furniture, basically, in a furniture store, um, just to, to put a few bucks together. But to my credit, Bob, I will point out that it was very expensive furniture that, <laughs> that I was moving. But, um, you know, finally, finally, I, I, I had a moment. And, um, and my wife, thank goodness for her and her good, her generous good graces had basically allowed me back in the house, although things were fairly chilly at that point, as you can mm-hmm. well imagine. Yeah. And, uh, but, but, but I, I remember it like it was yesterday on, on May 9th of 2000. So, you know, a little over 14 years ago, 
I was uh, I, I was I was sitting in what used to be my study, and at that point I viewed it as her study, and <laughs> and I was reading a book uh, with the most ironic title. It was called "The Thinking Person's Guide to Sobriety." which is such a ridiculous title in the first place because it's yeah. your thinking that is so screwed up. You know, all, yeah. all action is born in thought, after all. And, uh, and, you know, but but my ego had it that, you know, as a lawyer, as a furniture-moving lawyer, no ordinary guide for me, right? I needed the thinking person's guide because, you know, I'm a because, thinking, all, insightful yeah. person, after all. And so I'm sitting there reading the thinking person's guide to sobriety, and I've got a joint burning in the ashtray and some, some whiskey on the rocks, and I'm sipping and I'm smoking and reading my book and my wife walks by and in her most gentle loving tones looks at me with total disgust and says aren't you supposed to be effing sober when you read that book and and I, I hadn't wrecked a car that night but I had wrecked cars <laughs> and I hadn't been arrested that night but I had been arrested and, and I hadn't shown up in the hospital in the throes of an overdose that night but I had done that too um, but somehow in that one moment I was able to see myself with a, a a kind of clarity that I had never before had. And the thing that got me, the thing that got me in that moment wasn't it wasn't the pain of of um, of addiction. It, it wasn't even the fear of of death. It was more the fear of living that same life over and over and over again, where every night was the same thing, where I'd swear tomorrow was going to be different, and every morning I'd wake up and it was no different at all. Yeah. And what it ultimately was, Bob, was the, the gap between what I knew I was capable of being and what I was actually being that I could, in that one moment, finally see. And once I saw it, it was one of those things where I couldn't unsee it anymore. Uh, I was just uh, unwilling or unable to hit the snooze button yet again and go back to sleep. And, um, and, and that proved to be the final moment for me. And one of the great things that I got from that, one of the things that I'd love to share uh, with, with individuals, with organizations, whoever it is I'm, that I'm talking to, is that these these moments of change, these pivotal moments that can completely shape and and, and adjust the, the course and trajectory of our lives, these don't necessarily have to be the big dramatic moments. Right. That they can be a, a, a self-created moment. And, um, and, and it's the kind of thing that's available to anybody. And, and for anybody who may be listening to this who's struggling with something, like literally right now, this moment as you're listening to my voice, this could be your moment if you choose it. So, um, so you know, and, and then thankfully, my experience is it's, it's been like living two completely different lives in one lifetime. And, and the fat kid with the husky-sized tough skins has done seven Ironman triathlons, and, and the guy that was in bankruptcy court in 1998 has created some successful business enterprises. And, okay, and, that, brings, uh, that brings me to and, the next and, point. And the, I'm sorry, say again? That brings me to the next point, because yeah. the people that I don't like in this world, there's not many people I don't like, but people I don't like are dream takers, people who, you know, always trying to put you down, always trying to find a reason why something won't succeed. I hate those yep. people. And yep. it seems to me that those people are led by lawyers and accountants. <laughs> how does a Sadly, lawyer... I think that's true. How does a lawyer... What was it about you that took 
a lawyer with problems to being a very successful entrepreneur when being an entrepreneur and being successful as an entrepreneur is bloody difficult. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think maybe I think maybe I get the benefit of my of my uh, non traditional background uh, that where I felt un- unconstrained by some of those usual things because I think accountants and lawyers part of the training that they naturally receive is to focus on what what can go wrong and yeah. how to guard against what can go wrong and obviously in the world of entrepreneurs. Um, you know, no guts, no glory, right? Yep. If you're not yep. willing to put something at risk, then you're never going to get the spoils. And and I think for me, I, I, I'm I'm really grateful that being a lawyer uh, really allowed me to discover my inner entrepreneur. And one thing I think, especially with lawyers, um, because as I said, I, I you know I, I was never good at numbers, so I don't know what happens with uh, with CPAs and accountants. Uh, and, and what kind of training they receive, but in law school, uh, there is, or at least when I was, when I was coming up, there was no, uh, mention at all about lawyer as business owner, lawyer as entrepreneur. And, and there's always, and, and, and I think it's largely for historical reasons, but there's always this notion that if you're, if you're just good at what you do, that the world will be the path to your door. And my experience is that yeah, that's, that's just decidedly untrue. It's bullshit. And, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. Thank you uh, for using That's the more right. elegant, uh, elegant right. uh, term to describe it. But uh, no, <laughs> no, it is as you say. It's total bullshit. And um, and so what I really got present to as a lawyer is that uh, the, that actually practicing law was a delegable duty that I could find lawyers. Who, who could stamp out the widgets of representing clients. But the mm. thing that wasn't delegable at all was being a business owner. And, and, of course, being a business owner, whether you own a law firm or a bakery or a construction company or, or whatever, I really believe it doesn't matter at all. But, but regardless of industry, being a business owner requires you to be – it requires a different toolkit, Yep. And and uh, you know if you're if you're a business owner and you don't understand the language of accounting or you don't understand marketing or you don't understand um, uh, operational infrastructure and how to manage all these things, you forget about stamping out the widgets of your business. Your business is doomed to fail, much in the same way that an airplane is going to crash into the side of a mountain if the pilot can't read the dials. Yes. And so yep. um, so it, for me, it was something that I, I feel. Um, I, I don't know. It was either divine intervention. I mean, I remember the moment where I was running on the treadmill and I saw a commercial for one eight hundred dentist, and I said, "Huh? How come there's nothing like that in the criminal defense space?" Right. And and that's how I ended up, you know, get, getting into one eight hundred no cuffs and and um, uh, and, and creating that whole that whole universe. So. I love um, it. It, it, and it, and it's really been i mean for me i i'm just so i'm so appreciative because i i never thought that or i should say it this way i had i had a misunderstanding about what entrepreneurship and being a business owner was all about and it took being a lawyer to bring me to that world and now for me that's the world that really that really excites me and, and yeah. i love talking to people about their businesses uh, and what can be done to improve them as much as I enjoy working on my own. 
I'm working with a um, an insurance company in Brazil, actually, that is um, an e-insurance company, which is not unusual in America, but it's certainly unusual in um, the emerging countries. And we're, we were talking earlier today about disruption and the number of industries that have been totally disrupted um, over the past, say, six or seven years in particular, but over the last ten probably. How's, mm-hmm. Has law been... Um, Disrupted? Has it changed anything in the last ten years? Or that when we watch um, um, Law and Order UK, that's what it's really like. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting. It's scary. Think, if it um, is. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, the practice of law, um, I, I think, remains largely unchanged in terms of the work of going to court, or certainly as a criminal defense lawyer. That's a. It's an industry that um, uh, that you know. There have been some tweaks to where uh, there's obviously more you can do with computers to to make uh, presentations more compelling for jurors. There are some small tweaks in terms of how the courts are operated. The biggest disruption in the legal space, though, has to be in the marketing side. Where, it, where it, it really has gone from being the best lawyer and having the best reputation to being the best lawyer when it comes to search engine optimization, managing your pay-per-click uh, campaigns on Google, um, your, your best, whoever's best at, at their um, uh, client profile. acquisition processes mm-hmm. and so forth. You bet. And... And sometimes, it's funny, I was at lunch with a lawyer uh, just a couple of days ago who is a really, really brilliant lawyer uh, and somebody who has never had to do any advertising just because in his world it's, it's, it's a word of mouth kind of a thing. Yeah. And he says, and we were at lunch, he says, you know, I think I finally have to build a website. The guy doesn't even have a website. <laughs> and, uh, he, and he says, you know, I, I see the, these cases going to competitors of mine who are just idiots. And, uh, and, and so our conversation was not only about how to attract clients, but it seems like now the, the idea of a business that doesn't have a website, uh, even if you have a good product and good word of mouth, it's almost like a rule out. Like if I'm interested in finding out about a company that I, I might prospectively do some kind of business with, if they don't have a website, uh, then I, I'm immediately going to conclude that this is a dinosaur of a company, and I don't want to do business with a dinosaur. So I think I, I, think, yeah. I, I think that the internet uh, it is the most disruptive force in the practice of law, and uh, and and lawyers are still struggling to catch up and figure out how to how to properly leverage it. Uh, lawyers do, I think, I think still. Um, and there's some exceptions, but for the most part, lawyers do a, a really terrible job of treating their business like a business. Mm. You know, in, in my law firm, we're really clear that there's only four things that we're interested in. We're interested in marketing activities to make the phone ring, sales activities to convert a ringing phone into a paying client, delivery of legal services uh, to make sure that we're delivering our clients exactly what we promised them, and ultimately our whole mission is about delivering them peace of mind, and then operational and infrastructure support so that the first three things can exist. But if it's not something concerning marketing, sales, delivery of services, or infrastructure, then it's a shiny object that I don't need to be distracted with and I should actively look to root out. 
Okay, let me before we get on to your stellar television career, let's get on to let, let me just ask you a quick question. Sure. You're you're hired to represent some guy that's I was just watching a thing this morning, I think, about Whitey. Um, it, you're, you're Whitey hired, Yeah, you're, you're hired to um, represent a guy that's killed 23 people. Allegedly, how, yes. <laughs> <laughs> spoken like a true lawyer. <laughs> if, how, do you, how do you honestly go into court and think, I'm going to get this guy off and know that you're turning somebody out that's a real bad guy? Yeah, so it, it's interesting that? because I'm asked some version of that question, Bob. That's probably the number one question that I'm asked. And sometimes it's framed in a little bit more of a pointed way, like, how do you sleep at night? Yeah, <laughs> I was, was actually going to yeah. say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, do you, how do you live with yourself? Or, uh, but, but, I mean, there's, there's um, uh, I, I think what, what's important for people to understand is, uh, at least in the American judicial system, that uh, that the criminal defense lawyer occupies um, a, a unique position. That the criminal defense lawyer is the one person on the planet whose job it is to basically hold the government to its highest ideals. So th the rules of the game are that no one is to be convicted unless the prosecution, the government, can prove each and every element of the case beyond a reasonable doubt, to the exclusion of every reasonable doubt. Yeah. And so, my, so the job of the criminal defense lawyer is to—it's it, it, it's really government uh, prosecution quality control to make sure that nobody is convicted unless the government's got the goods. And so, what what that translates into is even if I'm representing a Whitey Bulger or somebody who, uh, where it seems that the proof may be overwhelming, uh, then my job is to go in there and test and cross-examine and 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 construct alternative theories and develop multiple inferences and do whatever I can to ensure that that Whitey would not be convicted uh, without the requisite level of proof. And, and if the answer, I mean, if the question really is, well, you know, how is it representing somebody that you know to be a bad guy? Um, frankly, I think there's a larger question at play, which is what would our system be if there wasn't somebody somebody championing the rights of the accused who, who according to the rules of the game, was unconcerned with that? Spoken and, and like spoken like a true defence lawyer. Okay, very <laughs> very quickly, we're running out of time. Sure. Your television career. Yes. Um, how did that come about? You know, so so funny. Um, uh, the, the short version is: thank you, Mel Gibson. It was Mel Gibson getting arrested for drunk driving that launched my TV <laughs> career. And it, it wasn't representing Mel, although he would have been smart to call me, but uh, at 1-800-NO-CUFFS, if I can just sneak that plug in. Uh, but uh, when Mel got arrested for drunk driving and other anti-Semitic rantings uh, in Malibu some years ago, yep. Entertainment Tonight was looking for somebody to go on air and do what I call expert blah, blah, you know, to yep. go on and give some yep. little sound bites about DUI cases and so forth. And, um, and, and the person that they had been using uh, didn't know anything about DUI cases and said, oh, hey, you should call Darren. He'll look good on camera. And they brought me in, and, 
the, the, the funny thing was I brought some different changes of clothes with me because intuitively I knew that, um, that uh, production crews were expensive and that the story was going to live a long time. I right. said, hey, you could shoot me wearing some different outfits and then uh, release the comments throughout the week. And apparently no one in the history of expert blah, blah had ever thought about that, that and what smart. a TV production crew might need. And they were immediately smitten with me and began using me as a field correspondent. And from there, it just opened up a whole new world where, for me, being able to go on television and speak to a larger audience became a, um, it, 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 just, it just became my life's mission and my life's purpose. I, and and all, uh, from, all along, I thought it was just your pure good looks that had done it. <laughs> Darren, I, I've, I've got to get out of here, but thank you very, very much for joining me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Enjoy you your time. Enjoy your time in um, in Vegas, and I will. Uh, I'll see you back at Metal. Uh, Look forward a to that. Week or two. So, if you'd like to find out more about Darren, now you can't forget this. Go to nocuffs.com. I love it. I'll be back <laughs> with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show right after this short break. The American Institute of Sales, Marketing, and Management is one of the leading accreditation institutes in the world. Do you have the letters AISMM after your name? Do you have the AISMM accreditation certificate on your wall for your clients and colleagues to envy? Do you have the AISMM membership pin on your lapel? AISMM helps you do business. Join the American Institute of Sales, Marketing, and Management now. Go to AISMM.org. That's AISMM.org. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking. Absolutely no bullshit business radio show on the Voice America Business Network. Now, 90% of the work that I do, um, apart from this radio program, and with my speech presentations, is with entrepreneurs and early stage companies and uh, we really appreciate the um, opportunity to speak to you every week and so if you have a great project that could be of benefit to all of us or if you if you think you've got an interesting business and we can help you with that please email me and we'll get you onto the show if I haven't answered your email either on air or off air I promise that I'll get round to it my first email today is from Ian McIntosh. In fact, I'll only have time for one um, from Reston, Virginia. It says, Dear Bob, you have repeatedly said that emotion is the most important motivator in any communication, whether it be trying to sell somebody something, negotiate a JV, apply for a job or whatever. I am trying to get investment into my company. So my question is, how important is emotion when you are speaking to potential investors? And a couple of weeks ago, Philip Lapuz, a young shark tank entrepreneur, made the sharks cry, proving that emotion is the key to a successful pitch, and he, and he got money. 
Mark Cuban, Kevin O'Leary and co. They're a pretty tough bunch. And Philip brought them to tears with his story of why he gave up a comfortable lifestyle to pursue his passion. Of course, that won't guarantee you a deal. But um, Philip, the designer of the high-end golf putter company Kronos, proved that a big investor is only willing to go the distance with a founder who will do whatever it takes to succeed. As Tim Draper said on this show, um, the most important things to him are commitment and perseverance. Now, during the pitch, the Sharks knew that Lapuz and his business partner, Eric Williams, had a quality product, but they're wary of investing in a company that wouldn't see an immediate return. It was only after a display of Lupus's powerful entrepreneurial drive that investor Robert Herjavec agrees to make a deal. So if you didn't see the show, and I must admit, I don't know why people would actually watch it because it's about as removed from reality as you can get. The Kronos gear guys appeared in traditional golf attire and asked the investors for $150,000 for 15% equity. Two years ago, they acquired a deal at the PGA Merchandise Show for distribution of their putters, the cheapest at 500 bucks in Japan and Scotland. That explained, they explained that they'd sold $260,000 worth of merchandise so far in 2014 with 95% of the sales in Japan. Um, by this point in the pitch, investors Cuban and Corcoran had bailed because they hate golf and Griner drops out because she thinks Kronos would only be a success in Japan. Playing with one of the putters in his hand, Herjavec asked Lapaz and Williams why they started the business in the first place. Lapaz suddenly becomes choked up and has tears running down his face. He explains that he's engaged and his fiancée lives in Japan. Shortly after his engagement proposal, he left a high-paying job as a consultant invested all his own money to start Kronos, something he had long dreamed of doing. His fiancée's traditionally-minded parents couldn't fathom why he'd leave a good job to start a business and no longer approved of their daughter marrying Lopez. He is working for Kronos to take... He's hoping for Kronos to take off so that he can get married in the States. He has to choose between the company of his dreams and his fiancée. Well, that was enough for the Sharks... And uh, they got um, $150,000 for 30%. They came to a deal. Now, it's impossible to say whether they would have been able to make a deal had he not become emotional, but there's no denying that um, Herjavec was willing to take a bigger risk than he'd normally take. So you can have a great product, but but your pitch will fall flat if you can't show an investor that you're willing to do whatever it takes to make their investment worth it. Ian, we'll send you out a copy of my new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blitz Your Competition, which is available at bookstores and at Amazon. So thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit Business Radio Show for Entrepreneurs. And don't forget, if you're serious about being successful, this is the place to come every week at the same time. This is Bob Pritchard on the Voice America Business Network, and I hope you have a fantastic week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.